kids. You know what time it is. It's 5.15 in the morning. On a foggy New Jersey morning. It's warm enough. I don't need gloves. Or three jackets. Let's check our weather. Fifty-two degrees. No participant uh, and fog. We're gonna go for a walk this morning. Not too long. About uh, an hour. And then I'm going to go do some shoveling, work on my fence. I've got the uh, fence, the first fence post dug out a bit. I'm starting to hit rock at about two and a half feet. Now the manual says, the internet says three feet deep for a six foot fence. So a nine foot post and a 12 inch wide hole which would make it very strong that no one is going to mess with. And I was thinking I could put a rebar stick at the end of the post, but that would probably weaken the wood. In any case, This is, thing is not going to fall over like my neighbor's fence. He put up this fence the other last year, and just on my side of the property. And he said, "Oh, don't take it personally. It's not about you." And he put up, he only put up a fence on our side. So when my other neighbor says, "What you doing?" I say, "Don't take it personally. It's not about you." Yep. <laughs> so, talk about personal issues, huh? It's like, what do you care about my fence? Why do you care about me? Well, what's happening over here? How could you care? Anyway, we got local news. Now, you said, well, Mike, you said you're not going to talk about ephemeral things. You're only going to talk about things that matter. Okay. We learned about the lymph, the lymph system, which is interesting. It's the pathway... It's a clear water system, like blood, where the um, the T-cells go through the body. That's interesting. And uh, the white blood cells, the uh, antibodies travel through the lymph and to the blood, back and forth, it seems. I didn't know about that. We were studying the atoms and the bodies yesterday. <clears throat> and, uh, well, hey, even looking at the Cirrus star above us. Um, the brightest star in the sky, the dog star. That's only bright because we're close to it. In another part of the galaxy, or another galaxy, it won't be bright. To another galaxy, we're just going to be another galaxy. Like, they won't, you won't even tell the difference between us 
all these stars will just be a clump. A clump of stars. So even the constellations are not eternal. They're ephemeral and relative. We watched the most massive fractal zoom ever yesterday, and it was going on forever. It went to something to the hundred and something degree zoom. Most amazing. It took the guy months to render. factory next door with the fog. I think I smell the homosoot. I think we gotta move out of here. Living next to this factory can't be healthy. There's a reason why they have a million filtration systems on their roof. But they ain't working well enough. I don't think they've been cleaned in a while. <sighs> every single day. Every single way. It's gonna get you. So is this random enough for you? I'll give you some more randoms. What else was I watching and learning yesterday? Okay, so a bit is a binary digit and a byte is a binary sequence. I think it was a sequence. I started to work out just how um, we can derive everything from ones and zeros. And I started to learn the bus system. So you've got multi, you've got multiplexers, which send, they break up long bytes and they, and they send them um, and pieces that are reassembled. So you can send higher bandwidth bytes over uh, lower bandwidth channels. And we learned about a bus system, the beginnings of the bus system. The bus used to be a long wire that would connect the different cabinets. A bunch of long wires that would connect the different cabinets of the computer systems and then we also learned about the north side and south side bus so the north side bus is the bus that's faster and talking to the CPU um, and the south side bus has slower devices like USB so graphic cards and main memory will go on the north side bus and the south side bus will have USB disks on it and those will have lower priority and they will come in via the north side bus so they're chained together. So 
those are all good things. I think we have to get into some Raspberry Pi and Arduino programming. And then I was thinking about, well, following my, my um, idea of Euler, well not Euler, sorry, Gauss, Karl Friedrich Gauss. I mean, the guy invented modular arithmetic. He invented so many things. And he sat down and wrote these papers. He like read and wrote papers. And um, I guess part of it was the invention of the printing press that allowed people to print papers and books. Because a lot of this stuff was just letters between mathematicians. So there was a revolution in communication which caused, I think, the increase in mathematical exchange. And we watched, okay, and I watched that interview in 1950s with Mr. Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell, who was born in 1870, and he was raised by his grandpa, who was, who saw the French Revolution and Napoleon. So this guy was like a living fossil. And he was saying how it's amazing how an empire it was, could be wiped out. A thousand year old empire could be wiped out in a day with the atomic bomb. And how England's involvement in the First World War caused communism in Russia. And so forth and so forth. Hardcore conservative guy. Who had a hard Victorian, I would say. And he had a hard time adjusting to the the new state of things. <clears throat> and uh, the Russell paradox is the question of the set of all the sets, if they contain the set of all the sets. And he has these logical paradoxes. So, we're getting there, and my theory now is that the encoding of programs into the digital bits, the actual machine code, and the organization of machine code, right now is very arbitrary. We have these huge machines, and we just pile in these programs, right? And um, we just fill up our memory with all these libraries, right? And I think that there has not been the last word on the organization or understanding of the binary codes that we've only been into it for 50 some years and there's going to be a lot more to be said about it. The relationship between human language and computer language.
so that's where I've been studying for a long time. And they say that the part of the brain that does math is the part that does space, spatial relationships, geometrics. And the part that does language is a completely separate part. So... We can... We can load bytes of letters into memory of a computer and just put them next to each other in, in an array. It's like this is the human language. So you have a series of bits, a string of bits, which are composed of a string of letters, which is composed of a string of words. String of words, words. A string of words. And it's funny. So this is what I was thinking about. Well, first of all, we can imagine the set of all the bits. And um, the permutations of all the bits. So just counting from one to infinity. And that will contain all the programs, all the games, you know, all the messages, everything that you could ever imagine will be contained in that set, right? It's like, let's start with a set of bits that begin with the header, I don't know, um, ELF, with those letters. So those will be executables. And, um, each part So that number will contain the entire program. And another number will contain the entire input data. Because every datagram can be represented as a large number. Now, of course, these files of data we have are just essentially numbers that are multiplexed. So it's a gigabyte file just think about that as a number 
that has been multiplexed out so it's broken up into bits <clears throat> and then well the multiplexing is also getting into the modular arithmetic with the remainders division and remainders so reading the tape so we have the infinite tape of Turing which is not infinite so we have Turing's tape of finite size which is a number and when you write to the tape you're producing a new number the tape is going to shift from one number to the other so we just have a tape number so let's just say the Turing machine is indexed by a tape number and each number is one of these infinite bit sequences because we already have that we already have the ability so moving the tape head is just dividing by a certain number getting the modulo, the remainder, after another number. So the read operation, or the move operation, or a jump operation, is just going to say, um, take this tape and divide it into segments of this size, or divide it by this number and give me the remainder. Pretty sure that was how it works. If we can address every every cell that way. So you divide it by half and give me the remainder. It'll give you the second half. first part of it well we have the shift operation I mean there's always the bit masks so you can create a bit mask and you can shift that's how we normally do it you say shift this many times um, to move the bits all the way to the front or basically multiply so you multiply by a negative number, or I guess that's what the division is, isn't it? Well, normally the way you work with bits is you have a mask and you say you add it to the mask and you check if a bit is set. You can shift left and right to move the bits up and down. So considering that, that we can pull out any bit we want, and we can divide it up any way we want, then instructions can be multiplexed onto the tape as well, where you can say, oh, put the argument here, put the second argument here, we'll read them both off as one bit string, and we split them in half by shifting them, or masking them. I think we use the XOR, or the OR, to remove the top part. Anyway, there's Let's put it this way, there's basic binary operations. To uh, mask out any bits you want. And to check them, to shift them. And we don't need to go into the details of exactly what does what, because I don't remember it. 
offhand. The major point of this discussion, the salient point, the salt, the essence, is that um, the humongous bit string can be shifted using just numerical operations. It's not mechanical tape. Now it's just <clears throat> multiplying and dividing, shift, doing bit operations and modulos. back now. This is half the walk, or a quarter of the walk. I reach the stream, the stream of random. Now we're heading back. So, So we can basically apply an operation. So we can first split up this tape into chunks and read out a window of an arbitrary length. And if we have a loop where we're reading from tape and writing to tape, then we'll see that the tape number will change. Because every write that we do creates a new tape, a new tape number. Because mathematically, we have no problem with infinite length strings of bits, or even well, yeah, it's just a number. It's just a variable x. So this variable x changes over time, and we can write it into a, a log. We can write it out. We can write the numbers down in a vector. And then we can say these are all the changes of the state. Now, could we include the instruction pointer into the state? Yes, we could. So every time that you move the instruction pointer forward, you move to a different position. That also gets stored in memory, and it's written to the tape. so that when you load the tape, you'll have a, the first word in there could be the instruction pointer. It could be just jump to this position. It could just be an instruction, jump to this position. And we start with zero. I don't know the pros and cons of that, but So what's next? 
what's next? So we're kind of struggling with encoding of the state of the machine. But what I'm trying to get to here is that we just have a bigger tape, which is the tape of time, which contains all of the states that the machine will go through over time. So every instruction that's executed, every step of time, will produce a new number. So if the machine runs a million steps, then we just have that infinitely long number a million times, which contains the entire state of the machine, including all of its memory, all of its registers, or whatever bits of memory it needs. Those are going to be stored in sequential uh, bits in the time tape so that we have a single so that then we have a single number representing both time and space because we can squish down the vector it's just a multiplexing so time is a multiplexer how's that now given all of that we've now gotten rid of time it doesn't exist in that respect but we can still create algorithms that produce chaos. Um, can we produce an algorithm that would run differently? Or is it all discrete? Can we look at that Wolfram stuff where that number or fractals where they are Is there any unpredictability in this system? Let's put it that way. Is there anything up to chance? Well, maybe we can't predict what the next step is going to be. But we can always predict what the next step will be. See, this is where we're going to get into some interesting thoughts. Wolfram was saying that things become computationally equivalent and even if you know all the inputs you won't know what this next step is going to be. So this is kind of where we're going to get to the edge of our knowledge here. But I thought it would be a nice little experiment to go through. A little... A little simulation. So what I'm thinking is even, so here's some of my thoughts from yesterday that I thought through. So <clears throat> one of the basic operations is jumping to a position. And that is going to be division of some kind. Now from organizing we can organize the code so that we can 
fetch all the data together and have it close together and have it encoded into the same, ideally into one bit. Right? Reading one bit from this mess should be the simplest operation. Right? And then encoding all of your data into one bit would be the most optimal thing. So processing your inputs and squishing them down into smaller bits, packing them together, compressing them, should be um, a preparation for running. So data cleaning. And then having different sets of data, a set of all sets that doesn't include itself. The sets of all other sets. And that you can find any given set by a symbol. So then, of course, we would have a number of sets. And this is kind of getting into the database world. It's like, how many databases do we have? What size are they? What columns do they? What tables do they have? What columns do they have? What permissions and so forth? So the set of all sets. And this is also getting into the human interface. Because, well, let's face it, kids. Anything we can do with binaries we can just do with ones as well, right? It doesn't have to be binaries, it could just be ones. Sure, it might be faster to have ones and zeros. But we could make machines that process any numbers, and we're talking about a mathematical machine here. So it doesn't matter what number it is. Base two seems simple, but base one seems simpler. What if we just have the actual count as the number of bits that are on, or the number of things that we have in our collection? forget about this whole bit thing. We just have sets of counts. And the set of sets is just the count of all of our set objects. Each set object is a single item, is a one. know that those are going to be infinite and infinitely complex. So it's kind of freeing to move into the world of pure math to get away from the idea of a machine representation. And I had this little clip that I wrote Actually, I'll include it in the beginning of this file where we can just imagine the tape measure that measures across our head, the number line, 
that stretches from the left branch to the right branch. The number line. It goes from left to right. And how the left brain, right hand will deal with the small numbers and the details and the right brain, left hand will deal with the big numbers, the patterns. And moving along this number line shifting along it is going to direct our consciousness so that we're going to use our spatial consciousness and the spatial part of our brain to zoom around in it and all of this that I'm describing right now is brain activity so you're inside of the brain in a small section the math brain when you're doing these operations and these are connected to the word brain and the audio brain. You tell the kid, what's one plus one? I mean, okay, that could even be remembered outside of the math brain. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to connect to that spatial area. where we can do things like measure and compare lengths. And each number is just a length on that number line. And in between, the, in that number line is also the whole brain and the connection between left and right. So you're spanning well, the infinite space. And infinity is going to the uh, left hand, right brain. That's how we deal with infinity, through patterns. Just a pattern, a generator. And we can do logic on those generators. Once we get the small numbers on the right hand, then we can actually do quantities. <clears throat> and then proofs will span both sides, I think. Anyway, so, so there's just some general ideas here, but we're describing the space of the brain. Or we're laying it out for you. And you can jump around now and navigate this hyperspace. But that navigation or floating in space and all of that, that's part of one section of the brain. That we already have. That's been delivered to us through millions of years of evolution. We're tapping into it. So we tap into that, we connect to it. Stick the plugs into the thing. The ting, the neural network, the section, the subsystem, the process, the yeah, subsection. We think about all these sections and sets and areas. I mean, that's also getting into the whole brain thing as well.
I remember at one point I tried to map out these tree structures onto a 3D world using Postgres, the Postgres database. And uh, basically we have a one-dimensional number that's just a, a long line or yeah, it's just a long number very long number and that's kind of like a multiplex split up into lots of different parts and different parts are used in different ways and it contains instructions on what to do so it's a program so the number tells you how to execute it or you have some muscle that knows how to execute that number some interpreter Okay, I'm almost back to the development, which should tell you exactly where I live. Damn. In terms of distance, time, the distance walked, the time taken. But, uh, digging is a pretty good sport. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to first close out this latest batch of podcasts. It's, I think it's pretty clean. I've gotten up to letter S. Or R including the stream of random. So this podcast is now self-referential. I mean, that's overblown now. I think we've gotten beyond self-referential. not dead sound, it's live sound. Some podcasts only exist, only contain this sound. So the set of 
the different sets. And sequences. So some kind of catalog of data. Different names, different indexes, dictionaries. Eventually we're going to store pointers in the directional space inside of the spatial subsystem that point back out at the rest of the brain. Right? So, if the spatial system is referencing the ears, we can imagine our ears getting warm. We can imagine sound waves of my voice hitting your auditory system, bouncing around in your ears. Creating waveforms. And these waveforms are analog signals being picked up by different neurons. contain the information about the frequency and the amplitude. Sine waves. In any case, we could think of that coming in and going to some kind of language processing in a different spot. And be converted to text or words. And those words going to another language processing. So now we're going to get into the girdle system where he's showing how we can build up logic on top of language, the set of all sentences, the set of all sounds, the set of logically true sentences. And these are different subsystems that are being indexed. Spatially as well. So the spatial system will point at different parts of the brain, different locations, loci, with connections, multiplexing, streams of data going between them. Well, what is the message? This is kind of getting into quine, where the message is the system that describes the system that creates the message. So our self-reflection, like we said before. An introspection, a view from the inside, an illumination, a debug trace. an awareness or a decomposition of awareness into parts. And then I think it's important that we have some compassion and some relaxation here, a gentle awakening of the awareness. A dawn of the mind, 
Hugh also sprach Zarathustra. Da, da. So, Q, Wagner, and uh, Nietzsche, wow. What a pair, huh? Anyway, I think that's enough drugs for today, kids. Enough drugs for today. Now go out and enjoy your life. Have a great day. Enjoy the sunlight, because the sun is just coming up over here. I guess I'm stealing it from somebody. The sun is setting on someone else. I can't stop it. I can't stop the, the rotation of the earth, let me tell you. I can't stop the train. Yeah, I think that was a good session. So, uh, we're gonna think about this some more, but I like the idea. I don't know what the idea is, but I like the performance. I'm not sure what the idea was, but it was fun going through it. <clears throat> I think the idea is that we have locations stored in one part of the brain and they can reference all the rest of the brain, including themselves, but they don't have the names. The names are just stored at different locations, just bit encoded or location encoded, spatially encoded. It's like, oh, we could find the names over here. And those names will contain pointers that can be dereferenced by the, the space system. Now let's take a prayer to the gods of podcasts. Fifty-eight minutes. That's awesome. Hacker Mike out. got a mental experiment to do. So we were learning about the number line and it being part of the brain in a fundamental section of math. And it's also the first mathematical instrument we found, which is basically a stick with a bunch of lines on it. And they're grouped into like four times six or something like that. So, basically, I just want to imagine a number line in my head and just imagine that extending to infinity um, <clears throat> as far as we can imagine. And then um, maybe uh, wrapping around as a circle in the end. Imagine it on the infinity symbol, like we're just staring at one section of the infinity symbol, where it looks flat but it actually curves around. I think that's the uh, thing we're going to think about. Okay, that's the experiment. I'll come back 
with more information later.